Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In podcast. Uh, this is now episode 13 of the podcast, in which we'll discuss chapter 11 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled Aslan is Nearer. And even that title has to send the right sort of chill into your bones. Aslan is nearer. Aslan is on the move. That we are moving in the story closer and closer to the real moment of holiness and beauty, the concept of the numinous that we've talked about before, which is Aslan approaching. And all of the transformation that comes from that is this experience that can almost be felt in this book, that when Lewis is describing uh, the way in which Narnia is changing because Aslan is nearer, uh, as the title of the chapter suggests, is a change that is physical, as we'll see, but it's a change that's emotional as well. Uh, Edmund gains, uh, for perhaps even for the first time, a spark of hope and a sense of goodness. And as we'll see, the White Witch herself is negatively transformed. She is further distorted and twisted into her own coldness and severity by lashing out in anger at the prospect of Aslan being on the move and the winter breaking. Last chapter, chapter 10, ended with this note of uh, joy, this note of generosity, this note of gift giving with Father Christmas, uh, dispensing gifts to Peter and Susan and Lucy. And he leaves that scene at the end of the chapter, uh, crying out, Merry Christmas, long live the true King. And we have this grand moment of celebration and exaltation from Father Christmas to herald the awakening of Narnia away from the curse and away from its slumber and from the snowy winter that it's been under for many, many years toward the reawakening of Narnia. And this is not just a simple awakening of Narnia. It's not as though Narnia is coming into consciousness. It's not as though Narnia is being created. We get that account in The Magician's Nephew. This is Narnia returning to its glorious self, the way in which it was designed and created to be. And that reawakening is a beautiful picture of redemption for us, that we are being made awake back into an identity that was always ours, that we are sons and daughters of Eve, that God has created us in his image. Our sin and our rebellion has marred that image, has struck against it, But what Jesus accomplishes for us and what Aslan's approach into Narnia accomplishes is a return. It's a reawakening. It's a a hearkening back to the status quo ante, the way things were before, back to this prelapsarian world in Eden, back to this world before the fall, this world of harmony and of, of beauty and of joy and intimacy uninterrupted by barriers of sin and shame. We are moving back toward the innocence that we once had. And so Aslan's approach ought to be something that that provokes within us this shiver of wonder, this sense of the numinous that Aslan's approach will not transform me into something entirely new, nor will it reincarnate me into something utterly foreign that Jesus is not like any other God. What he promises is a return to who we really are, the person we are that we have forgotten. That is one of the central shames 
of our fallen selves is that we have forgotten who we are. And so Peter and Susan and Lucy are advancing further. All four of them, Edmund included, go into Narnia to discover who they are. They are kings and queens. They are destined for great things. And the awakening of Narnia from its slumber is a great uh, physical manifestation of the landscape for a spiritual transformation in the heart that the winter is over and spring has come and it is time to flourish and blossom and bloom that the seed that would, that has been sown that has died will now be regrown and reborn up through the ground into a glorious blossom. That is the promise of the gospel. And it's in this chapter that we'll begin seeing that awaken, uh, in so many different passages as we go forward. The opening sentence of chapter 11, we are interlacing. uh, Lewis's interlacing here uh, cuts us away from Peter and Susan and Lucy and Father Christmas and the Beavers back to Edmund. And it says in the opening line, Edmund, meanwhile, had been having a most disappointing time. And notice how stark the contrast between the abundance and the generosity and the warmth of Father Christmas, which we just left, to the statement that Edmund, meanwhile, had been having a most disappointing time. Indeed, he is discovering the consequences of his actions, that his enchantment under the witch's curse, the Turkish delight, the promise of satisfaction that was never delivered, the cunning and clever deception of sin and enticement and temptation has gotten him, hooked him in, and now he's starting to reckon with the reality of sin, which is quite different from the allure it presents at first, that uh, temptation, the language of seduction and flattery and charm is certainly gripping and intriguing and interesting, and that we can become easily enamored by that. But the reality of sin is a far different issue. Sin, by definition, cannot be satisfying. It cannot be interesting. Because it, has, it is the exact opposite and absence of God, the source of all pleasure and joy. It's like in the prodigal son account in Luke 15 that the allure of the far country drew the son out and he uh, spins lavishly. And then he finds himself in dire circumstances. And there's that great awakening moment where uh, Luke says, and then he came to himself. This realization of the state he is in, that uh, he is not eating pigs. That would be bad enough, being a Jew, to eat something as unclean as a pig. But he's eating that which pigs eat. It is a further degradation that he's suffered. And yet he awakens to it. And the awakening to the reality of your sin is a prerequisite for redemption and grace and salvation. Uh, It's what the disciples called repentance. Repent and believe. That is the message preached. Repent and believe. And Edmund is beginning his repentance in this chapter. And not yet, though. In the opening paragraph, he asks the white witch, Please, your majesty, could I have some Turkish delight? You see, the poison of the previous temptation has addled his mind. It's like a toxic, um, overwhelming presence in his mind. that All he can think about is returning to that, that sin. And she treats him cruelly. Uh, She smacks him. She brings him dry, stale bread and uh, water in an iron cup. Um, 
And Edmund is still sulking. He's still cynical here, but you see him as this prisoner of hers um, in a difficult situation. But then uh, the White Witch orders Maugrim, the chief of her secret police, which we were introduced to with the ransacking of Tumnus's house. The White Witch orders Maugrim with a very particular command uh, that is quite striking. She tells him, Maugrim, she says, take with you the swiftest of your wolves and go at once to the house of the beavers and kill whatever you find there. If they are already gone, then make all speed to the stone table, but do not be seen. Now, we know plot-wise what's happening, that the beavers uh, predicted this and uh, and made arrangements ahead of time that they are not at home. We know that, that they have already made their trek. But think about why the White Witch is sending Maugrim out with the command to kill whatever you find there. Uh, th- this is not unlike the action that King Herod takes in um, in the nativity account of Jesus with the massacre of the, inc- the innocents. Uh, Devin Brown talks about this in his book where uh, there's quite a striking parallel between Herod's attempt to thwart uh, the kingdom of Christ with Jesus's birth in Bethlehem by slaughtering all babies, all male children, two years old and under, issuing this command to kill whatever you find as a way of thwarting this kingdom. And the White Witch is doing the same thing, right? There are children in Narnia who are destined to reign as kings and queens, and she is doing everything she can to frustrate that prophecy. And she sends her police out to kill whatever you find indiscriminately. And it's uh, quite a portrait of evil, the, the length to which evil will go in order to retain power and authority. And yet, the authority of Christ is unwavering, that the prophecies are true, that he shall reign forever and ever, that uh, Jesus is king of kings. As uh, Abraham Kuyper once said, uh, there is not one square inch in all of this universe over which Christ does not say, mine. It's mine. Jesus is sovereign over all things, period. He's the king. He is who he says he is. And for the white witch here to be under the assumption that she can simply send out agents of force to thwart this prophecy is silly. That if Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy are prophesied by Aslan to reign as kings and queens at Caraparavel, it shall be done. It will be done. It will come at great cost, as we'll see. Uh, Aslan is not safe. That uh, the call is a call of sacrifice and of nobility and of bravery. That uh, in this world you will have trouble, Jesus says. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Notice the tenses. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That you have the future tense. In this world you will have trouble. Present tense. Take heart. Past tense. For I have overcome. It's this great statement of authority that there is not one square inch in this cosmos over which Christ does not say mine. It's mine, all of it. I'm king of all of it. And Aslan is king of Narnia. And he is approaching. He's on the move. He is doing the miracle. He has already done great things. His promises are true. And the white witch is flailing. She's trying as best as she can to thwart it. 
And just like the prodigal son, with his moment of epiphany, Edmund has one as well. It says this, It didn't look now as if the witch intended to make him a king. She had lied. She was a liar. All the things he had said to make himself believe that she was good and kind and that her side was really the right side sounded to him silly now. He would have given anything to meet the others at this moment, even Peter. The only way to comfort himself now was to try to believe that the whole thing was a dream, that he might wake up any moment. And as they went on, hour after hour, it did come to seem like a dream. Now, the beauty of this is that that Edmund is waking up. He is waking up, not from something like sleep physically, but he is waking up spiritually, that he is coming to realize what evil is and what good is, and he's starting to pine for and long for the good. He would have given anything to meet the others at this moment, even Peter. He's longing for reconciliation. He's longing for redemption. This is a good thing for Edmund. And she had not intended him to be a king. He was a pawn all along, and she was using him, exploiting him to her own efforts. But then uh, the white witch and the dwarf and Edmund on their sledge, um, they run across this uh, interesting little party of animals. And this might be one of my most favorite moments in the entire book. Uh, It's subtle, but it's glorious. And this is the merry party scene. Uh, It says that a little way off at the foot of a tree sat a merry party. M-E-R-R-Y, a merry party. And this is this beautiful moment. The white witch and uh, the dwarf and Edmund are um, racing on their sledge and they see this little tea party, this little um, joyful gathering of animals and the white witch stops. And listen to how Lewis describes this. A little way off at the foot of a tree sat a merry party, a squirrel and his wife with their children and two satyrs and a dwarf, and an old dog fox, all on stools round a table. Edmund couldn't quite see what they were eating, but it smelled lovely, and there seemed to be decorations of holly, and he wasn't at all sure that he didn't see something like a plum pudding. At the moment when the sledge stopped, the fox, who was obviously the oldest person present, had just risen to its feet, holding a glass in its right paw as if it was going to say something. But when the whole party saw the sledge stopping and who was in it, all the gaiety went out of their faces. The father squirrel stopped eating with his fork halfway to his mouth, and one of the satyrs stopped with its fork actually in its mouth, and the baby squirrels squeaked with terror. What is the meaning of this? asked the the witch queen. Nobody answered. Speak, vermin, she said again, or do you want my dwarf to find you a tongue with his whip? What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? Please, your majesty, said the fox, we were given them. And if I might make so bold as to drink your majesty's very good health, who gave them to you, said the witch. Father Christmas, stammered the fox. What? roared the witch, springing from the sledge and taking a few strides nearer to the terrified animals. He has not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you? But no, say you have been lying, and you shall, even now, be forgiven. At that moment, 
One of the young squirrels lost its head completely. He has! He has! He has! It squeaked, beating its little spoon on the table. Edmund saw the witch bite her lips so that a drop of blood appeared on her white cheek. Then she raised her wand. What an incredible moment this is. This is the merry party with the squirrels and the satyrs and the dwarf and the fox all rejoicing, celebrating together. This is Christian revelry, just like we saw several chapters ago with uh, Tumnus's description of Narnia before the curse, alive with music and singing and dancing and laughing loudly and rejoicing together in community, uh, singing as one the praises of the king. This is what we were made for. This is Christian revelry. This is the joy of the Lord being our strength. If Aslan is on the move, and if the winter is breaking, of course you celebrate. This is what we were made for. And here they are, enjoying it. Plum puddings, decorations, a glass raised in the hand for a toast to King Aslan on the move. And notice the White Witch's response. What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Now notice in this exchange, who is the cosmic killjoy? It's not those serving the king. It's not the Narnians. It's not the animals. It's the witch. The forces of evil are the boring ones, the killjoys, the party poopers. Then remember, the white witch's power is not of turning stone into life. It's of turning life into stone. Her power is one of ceasing life, of bringing glory and joy and revelry and dancing and singing to an end, right? It's, Tumnus's cave is ransacked when, uh, when Maugram's there. Before that, Tumnus and Lucy have a beautiful tea together and they, he plays the flute and they talk of these grand stories of Narnia of times long ago. That the force of evil is one of stagnance and boredom and, and disruption. She is the cosmic killjoy, the white witch is. And to her perspective, it looks like gluttony and waste and self-indulgence, but it isn't. It's a right celebration. Everything sad is coming untrue. Aslan is on the move. Raise a glass. This, is, this ought to be the atmosphere of every Christian interaction, right? There is a time for everything, certainly. There's a time to weep and there's a time to dance. There is a time for everything under the sun. But when people spend time with a Christian, it ought to make them want to believe in something like grandeur and joy and laughter and merriment. Joe Rigney, in his book, Live Like a Narnian, says this. <clears throat> he says, the benefit of this scene is that it demonstrates that the witch's evil is not fundamentally about winter and cold weather, but about a deep-seated hostility to life, joy, and celebration. Hear that again. This is Joe Rigney. The benefit of this scene is that it demonstrates that the witch's evil is not fundamentally about winter and cold weather, but about a deep-seated hostility to life, joy, and celebration, a hatred for pleasure. This goes back to something Lewis said in the screw tape letters, that he has screw tape and wormwood acknowledge and admit that God is the source of all pleasure. Lewis says that he's a hedonist at heart. Out at his sea, out at God's sea 
is pleasure forevermore, which is Psalm 16. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God's invitation is one to a banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. And the whole story, the whole drama of God's word is one of movement toward a wedding. The whole point of the Bible, Doug Wilson says, kill the dragon, get the girl. And when we see ourselves in that story, then Christian revelry bubbles up from within us. That we are creatures who are meant to take delight in the things of God. Right? We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. We are, we are meant to be pleased more. We are half-hearted creatures. That's our state under sin. And what this merry party shows is what the right response is to the arrival of Aslan in your life. Winter is breaking. Spring has come. It's time to celebrate. Sing and dance. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Paul says. Uh, George Grant, a writer and historian, says this. Grant says, the word Mary, which Lewis uses that word to describe this party, is from an old Anglo-Saxon word which literally meant valiant, illustrious, great, or mighty. Thus, to be merry was not merely to be mirthful, but to be joyously strong and gallant. That the word merry in its root meant valiant, great, illustrious, mighty. So it doesn't just mean happy or kind or nice. It is joyously strong and gallant and noble and brave. It's brave for them to hold this party. The white witch isn't dead. She could very easily discover them. And indeed she does discover them and they are punished for it. And yet it was worth it. It's time to sing and dance. Aslan is on the move. So she turns them all to stone with her wand. She stops the party. She brings the merriment to a close, but not forever. And Edmund recognizes it. And Lewis says this, Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. Notice that Edmund is starting to align himself with the good. For the first time in the story, Edmund felt sorry for someone besides himself. It seemed so pitiful to think of those little stone figures sitting there all the silent days and all the dark nights, year after year, till the moss grew on them, and at last even their faces crumbled away. What a tragic and uh, sorrowful image. And yet, this is what Lewis is showing us. This is what evil does. This is what it is capable of. As a way for us to learn from the story, when we close the line, the witch in the wardrobe, we ought to learn from this by desiring good feasting, robust joy, all right, songs and harmonies and laughter, and great evenings with friends. We ought to long for that, and we ought to hate the forces of evil that seek to kill and to frustrate and thwart that joy which we were designed for. And now for the rest of the chapter, some, Lewis does something interesting. It is his longest description, uh, outright description, particularly of the setting, in all of the Chronicles. He spends more time here describing the environment and the surroundings and the setting than practically any other time. And what he's describing, uh, the rhythm of it is quite fascinating because for all these different pieces of the Narnian world that he's about to describe, you see this sort of crescendo in the narrative. 
where he'll talk about a single patch of grass or a single bird warbling in the branches or a single drip of water from a melting icicle. And then as he describes it, he describes more and more and more of the natural world joining into that single image or that single sound until it becomes an entire chorus, an entire symphony of Narnia. Let me read you one example of what I'm talking about with this, um, the tempo of this scene as he's describing the winter thawing and spring coming uh, with this crescendo up to this grand congregational experience with nature. Uh, This is the moment where he's describing uh, birds. He talks about grass, ice, the clouds. He, He chronicles all sorts of things. But listen to this, how it starts with a single sound or a single image and crescendos. Lewis says this, Then came a sound even more delicious than the sound of water. Close beside the path they were following, a bird suddenly chirped from the branch of a tree. It was answered by the chuckle of another bird a little further off. And then, as if that had been a signal, there was chattering and chirruping in every direction. And then a moment of full song. And within five minutes, the whole wood was ringing with birds' music. And wherever Edmund's eyes turned, he saw birds alighting on branches or sailing overhead or chasing one another or having their little quarrels or tidying up their feathers with their beaks. See the progression? One bird chirping on a branch and then another answering and then a third, and then a whole song, until suddenly everywhere Edmund turned, he could see birds flying, singing, uh, cleaning their feathers, playing with one another. It's this beautiful, gradual image of Narnia awakening from the curse. And again, he does that throughout almost two or three pages, depending on the edition you have, of straightforward description of the ice melting to water, and of the snow giving way to the dark brown of the fir trees. And then the flowers, he does the same thing, where there's a single flower, and then two, and then an entire field. It's just this beautiful portrait of growth and flourishing. And as I said earlier, that physical embodiment of gradual awakening and flourishing and blossoming is occurring in Edmund's own heart. Right in the middle of this description, Lewis says this about Edmund. And his heart, Edmund's, gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why, when he realized that the frost was over. Listen to that again. And his heart gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why, when he realized that the frost was over. This is parallel to the sort of response that children had when they heard Aslan's name for the first time. This numinous experience of awe and wonder that you don't quite know why, but you are responding as fully as you possibly can to it. Lewis says his heart gave a great leap, though he didn't know why, when he realized that the frost was over, that the curse is over. And he's not entirely sure what's happening, but the seed that was planted in Edmund, when he heard Aslan's name too, he was in the room when the beavers were talking about the prophecy. He heard. Now he responded poorly then. He didn't like the name of Aslan, because he's under the witch's spell. He is entranced by his own greed. But here, that seed which was planted all those days ago is beginning to flourish in Edmund. 
And what a beautiful picture of the gospel. And what a beautiful picture for us that you might sow seeds into your children's lives or into your students' lives or into your coworkers' lives and, and see nothing but negativity, nothing but cynicism and greed and nothing but a, a wall. Just like Edmund, where you are saying, Jesus is king, Aslan is on the move. You are meant for extraordinary things. God has a great plan for you. God loves you. Jesus is for you. He wants to save you. You could be sowing those seeds of truth and be met with nothing but obstruction and defiance and cynicism. And yet you never really know when that seed will break and a blossom will bloom from the ground. Edmund, right in this moment, is realizing that the frost is over and his heart leaps. There's a work being done in his heart. He doesn't know why. Read Lewis again. His heart gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why, when he realized that the frost was over. Now, his, his circumstances are still dire. They get out of the sledge, and he is bound like a slave, and they start walking through the mud. And Edmund's slavery is a stark contrast to the liberation of Narnia from the curse. And toward the end of the chapter, the witch uh, has the dwarf whip at Edmund for them to walk faster and faster as though she's trying to outrun the reality of this curse. And the dwarf closes the chapter and he says, this is no thaw. This is spring. And what a beautiful statement. This is no thaw. This is not temporary. This promises to be a real spring. So thank you for listening. Make sure you come back next time. We will look at chapter 12 of the novel, Peter's First Battle. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.